a good evening to each one of you. Greetings in Jesus' name. He's the reason we're here, right? It's been a good while since I've been in this building. I guess I stood behind this pulpit one other time and I survived, so I'll try it again. How many of you were here for that? I remember, and I remember very distinctly what I preached on. And probably nobody else does. It's the only sermon I ever heard or preached from the book of Nahum. I've had the assignment, I accepted the assignment a long time ago. And uh, there's a saying, never do today what you can put off until tomorrow. I meditated a lot on this subject over the last months. And in some ways that's good and in some ways it's bad because I've had so many thoughts here and there and everywhere and how to boil it down and how to put it in a way that is succinct, that you can understand, that makes sense. And then to think of a topic, a theme, one word, and to divide it into four or into three messages, deciding which part goes in which message. And I really kind of griped about this with myself and with a few people. How do you have worship in the home or the church if you don't have it in your personal life? And so I'm not sure how everything's going to come out, so you have to bear with me and, and keep listening. Because I know there's things that should be said at the onset that I'm not going to get said, and there's some things that should be said here that later that I might say here. This is a Bible conference, I believe. I'm not sure if you have that term to it or not, but my desire is to, to take the word and rightly divide it. But when I was given a subject and titles and no scripture, it's a little different than giving a text to expound on. And I desire to, to, uh, to preach truth and not just my opinion. And I, I've been told by many of you that you're praying for you, praying for me, and I, I really appreciate that, and I desperately need your prayers. You've heard of this subject for some time past, and I'm sure you've had thoughts of worship, at least briefly, as you've meditated on this. And I'd like to hear if you have any thoughts that you want to share. We heard some from Brother Kevin and some others, but what what is worship? When you think of worship, what comes to your mind immediately? Give praise to our King. Okay? God in the highest place. Is worship something we do? Or is it just in the mind? Does who or what we worship shape us? Or does who we are shape our worship? If I could boil down to a phrase for in my meditation, and, and maybe something you can take with you, I would say that worship is a posture of the heart. It is what my heart is... The posture and the, the direction that my heart is pointed I'd like to read a, a verse or two from Exodus 
chapter 4. It was in my thoughts and not in my notes, but I think it needs to fit here. One of these things that, here again, trying to to bring it together. But Exodus chapter 4. God had appeared to Moses, had given him the task of going to the, the Israelites in bondage and declaring to them that God was going to deliver them. And here in... I'll begin at verse 29 of Exodus 4. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They believed and it caused them to worship, and they bowed their heads. The word worship, the, the Hebrew word, has the idea of bowing down. That's, that's the gist of the word, to, to bow down, to humble oneself. And it's interesting how many times the word worship, or worshipped, often it's referring to an act, worshipped, is coupled with that phrase, they bowed down or bowed their heads. And so it's like they bowed their heads and bowed their hearts. (laughs) It's kind of, there's a physical posture in the Old Testament that is very prevalent whenever worship is mentioned. But I'm not going to get too deep into all the details of what worship is. We're going to go to worship in the home. And turn with you, if you would, to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verse 16. So here, Abraham had entertained angels, perhaps unawares, and then... They were getting ready to leave. And so that that's, they were getting ready to leave. It says, And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. I'd like to use this as a a text. The first thing I'd like to point out from this passage is what God says about Abraham. I know him. That is, that is a key, and, and if we look in, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. And I think we could deduce from that that a lot of the scriptures tying in here. Abraham loved God, and because of that, God knew him. God had, there was a relationship there. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. 
say, Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. Now there's worship, but not toward God. And, and I haven't looked at that really, but worship, maybe I just interjected here. I heard someone say this, and I, I've pondered it, and I don't quite agree totally, but I think the concept is there. That in worship, the Bible is not, I think he said, the, the, the gas pedal, or you could say the engine, but it's the steering wheel. Now, I think it's somewhat the speed, the depth, the... the uh, What's the word I'm really looking for? But the, the true amount of our worship is gauged because of Scripture. But what it's saying is worship happens. Whether or not you have the Scriptures, worship happens. The Bible directs our worship to God. And I think as we see God for who He really is, it can accelerate that worship. But here, ye did service to them which are... By nature are no gods, when ye knew not God. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, where unto ye desire again to be in bondage. You say you know God, and by that God knows you. Worship in the home starts with worship in the head of the home. A relationship with God, knowing God, and being known of God. I think Abraham was learning to know God, and God was forthright in declaring a reciprocal relationship. I know Him. Can that be said of you? That God says, I know you. Notice the two aspects of, of what God knew about him. It says here in verse 19 of Genesis 18, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. The two things here, he will command or he will teach those he is responsible for. And because of that teaching, there will be faithfulness passed on. They will do the relationship that Abraham had with God moved him to pass on that faith to his household. He held the Lord, the way of the Lord, in high esteem. And God knew he would be faithful in passing that on. At this point, Isaac had not been born. But he says he will command his household, those he was responsible for, those he had close interaction with would feel the influence of his life. I believe the first place that in, the, in the King James that we actually have the word worship used is in Genesis 22. I'd like to look at that. And here again, the, the Hebrew word can be translated different ways, and so the same Hebrew word may be used before this, but this is where we, we first find the word worship and I think it is, someone has said, you know, if we want to find out what a, a, a word or a topic is, go to the first place in Scripture. It may bear more weight than, than just going in some other place. I don't know if it's always true, but I think it is very formative here as we look at this. 
Genesis 22. Let's begin reading at verse, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham arose, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son and took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here, I, here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Notice here that worship, Abraham said, we're going to worship. And it was in the context of sacrifice. How could Abraham say, we will worship? When he knew that he was planning to go and kill his, the thing that was most important on earth to him. How could he say that? What is worship? Recently at Pike, we were looking at the life of Abraham on a, on a Wednesday evening, and a brother remarked that you know, to Abraham, Isaac was already dead. And I think that that's true, because just as Jesus' battle was won in the garden, I think Abraham's battle was won before they got to the mountain. And in his mind, Isaac was already dead. But I'd like to read a poem, just a short little poem here that I've, I've thought about. I don't know where I came across it, but it's fit so many places in my thought process in the last four to six months. And it may seem interjected here, but you'll, you'll see in a bit. Feeling, faith, and fact. Three were walking on a wall. Feeling, faith, and fact. When feeling took an awful fall and faith was taken back, so close was faith to feeling that faith stumbled and fell down too. But fact remained strong and pulled up faith and faith brought feeling too. Now, did you understand what it's saying? There's kind of three parts to our, our being and how we interact with life. There's facts, cold, hard facts. There's faith, which is how we look at those facts. And there's feeling of how we interpret what we see. Worship is defined, defined in, in an American Heritage Dictionary. It says, The reverent love and devotion accorded a deity, an idol, or a sacred object were the ceremonies, prayers, or other religious forms by which this love is expressed 
ardent admiration or love. Adoration. So is worship fact, faith, or feeling? It's a combination. My, my little, def, another definition, so heart posture is, is worship. But here's something that, that came to me. I believe that worship is what happens when we see facts through eyes of faith that produce feelings that do something. So, a sunset was mentioned this evening. Most people that saw it, including myself, thought it was beautiful. That was a fact, right? It was orange. Now, what, what about it? Most of us here, all of us, I hope, have faith. And we see that sunset, we see a God, a creator, that designed the intricacies of those compounds and chemicals and light rays diffracting and diffusing and whatever happens. And we go, wow. And we have worship. Somebody else can see that same sunset. It doesn't produce that at all. There's no faith. So, worship is what happens when we see facts through eyes of faith that produce feelings that then off, we act one way or another. It's either a mental action or we verbalize. When I was when I was thinking about this a couple a week or so ago, there were a couple tree maple trees that I was driving past every day, and they were there's some pretty ones, but there was one or two in particular. I mean, they were just balls of fire. And when I would drive past, this was going through my mind: the fact, the faith. And then I wanted to say something. I wanted to tell somebody, "Look at that beautiful tree that God made." that worship in part Abraham walked up that mountain the fact was that Isaac was going to die the faith was that God was going to raise him from the dead it says in Hebrews counting that God would raise him from the dead in the which he received him in a figure and I basically I'd say that that's kind of what happened in Abraham's mind God raised him from the dead and it produced an attitude of God, I will do whatever you say. A feeling of, of humble surrender. And that was worship. And that's the worship that I believe that Abraham was speaking of when he said, we will go worship. But notice again that this act of worship was centered on sacrifice, of giving something costly the most valuable thing in his life. How many of you have heard of the American dream? What is it? What is the American dream? There's a definition. A happy way of living that is thought by many Americans is something that can be achieved by anyone in the U.S., especially by working hard and becoming successful. And then they have an example with good jobs, a nice house, two children, and plenty of money, they believed they were living the American dream. Who or what is being worshipped if you were trying to live the American dream? You. You. 
Mark 7, 6 and 7. Jesus answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, that is, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, commandments of men may be a code written down somewhere, but yeah, I think there's a lot of commandments of men that are cultural expectations. Is that fair? Peer pressure becomes, if we let it, can become a, a commandment of men. And I'm not looking at the whole context here, but there were people that thought that they were worshiping God, but they were washing cups and they were doing a lot of things. And God said, no, their heart is not toward me. And we can have a lot of doing in our lives, in our heart. We're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping our own flesh. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. We have the first of the Ten Commandments. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bear th bow thyself down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I believe the worship of idols was, was a prevalent practice in those days. Physical objects were crafted and created and made and bowed down to made sacrifice to. They would bring offerings. We have some CDs of, of a reading, of writing of history of, of Egypt and ancient Egypt. And it's it just the, the harvest would happen and they would take their long procession of, of people carrying gifts to the temple and leave it at the temple. It was costly to worship the idols. I haven't seen anyone recently go out and bow down beside their car but I've seen some people that come pretty close to worshiping it. And a lot of other things. A huge, I'd say this, I think there's a, a huge change in the society of, of the world in, in seeking something else to worship. Most civilizations sought something to worship. I don't think it's so today. I want to read you a definition of a word. A doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interests or values, especially a philosophy that usually rejects supernaturalism and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. Any clues on what you guesses on what the word is? The word is humanism. I'll read it again, because I think that's where we are as a society, at least in part. A doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interests or values, especially a philosophy that usually rejects supernaturalism or any, any God-deity involvement, and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. Secular humanism. Now, why do I bring this in? 
Because I think it's a tendency of each one of us to focus on ourselves. And in our families, we start looking inward. We start, we want to have a good time. We want to, to fulfill our pleasures. And we become very self-centered and we aren't worshiping God. We begin to worship ourselves. It happens in individuals, in the parents, but it can quickly, quickly turn to influence our children. Who is important? What is important? I'd just like to point out something in, in the life of Job. He had a concern for his children's well-being, his, their spiritual well-being. His sons would feast from house to house, evidently maybe on their birthdays. It was a special day, and they kind of had this circuit from what the way it says. And, and then when it was done, it says, Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now it's interesting, Young's, living trans, Young's literal translation says, perhaps my sons have sinned, yet blessed God in their heart. I think there, there's that word, it's interesting, the word that's used as cursed is actually interpreted blessed many, many, many more times. I'm not sure exactly what's here, but they have sinned. I don't think that they would have totally rebelled or blasphemed God or he wouldn't have. I don't, I'm not sure what all, but he was concerned that they had not shamed God or, or turned their hearts to something else. His goal was to present his children acceptable to God, and he did it in the context of sacrifice again. I'd just like to, to look now at a couple practical things that as we in our homes that we can need to keep in mind and do. And, you know, I'm up here. I have, I, I'm in, I'm in the middle of, of home. My oldest two children are here tonight. I'm in the middle of home. They're in a youth activity. They, they were doing a service activity this afternoon. And, and then we have one that's not yet born. And so I've got the spectrum and here I am. I'm supposed to tell you how to do it when I'm struggling to know how to do it myself. Just because I say something here doesn't mean that I'm perfect or I know best. I'm as big of a failure in some of these areas as anyone. But I pray that God would, would help me and forgive me where I have failed and encourage you Sacrifice is foundational for worship. And that's got to be true in the family. You can have a godly family, I believe, and not have a time of devotions. But that, I believe, is a tremendous aspect of worship in the home. A time set aside to cultivate a respect for God, a time of singing, praying, reading and expounding scriptures, creating a culture that exalts the name of God and makes God a priority. 
And we go through seasons in our home. We'll go for months doing it every day, and then things happen, we get busy. It doesn't happen. But our lives and our actions will demonstrate what's priority. I remember someone shared in the Sunday school class years ago a story, and I don't have all the details, but someone stopped by a, a, a family, a family's place late morning, and the family was in sitting around the table. And he said, the, the, the visitor said, well, how's this work? You can't be a successful farmer when you're sitting around the table at nine o'clock in the morning. You need to be out cultivating your corn. I said, well, my neighbors are raising corn to feed pigs. And I'm raising children for the kingdom of God. Your actions will demonstrate your priorities. More is caught than taught, but doing, but the teaching or the doing will enable the catching. Not so much what is said, perhaps, but that something is said. I thank God for His grace and the faith that I can have that He'll take even in something like preaching my my feeble attempts and he can bless people in different ways and God can take my and your attempts and desires but not just desires desires that produce action and can bless your family young parents establish goals for your family kingdom goals giving serving hosting, etc. I'd say this is one of the things I regret most about the last number of years is, is really taking seriously the importance of when a home is established, okay, what is this home for? What's the purpose? What's the goals? What is a direction, a focus? And goals aren't, I'm not a very goal-oriented person as far as being able to set out goals, and, and that's, I do, and I have some goals perhaps, but it, it's, it's been a weakness. But a good goal is something that you can actually measure and track. And, and being able to set some goals for yourself and for your family. I mentioned giving on here, and I'm, I'm using, actually, I'm going to conclude shortly with a, a few paragraphs from a book about giving because I think that is one way that we do worship and we can draw together and it shows where our priorities are. The kingdom of God or materialism, which is closely retied and related, tied and related to humanism. But we say that we want our children to love and serve the Lord, but do our lives and priorities really say that? I find it interesting that Abraham, we had what was referenced of him in, in chapter... 18. And then in chapter 26 of Genesis, it says that Eliezer was sent to find a wife for Isaac. And that's the second place in Scripture where we have the idea of worship is in Eliezer's life. When he found a wife for Isaac, when he came there and he prayed, God, I want you to show me what to do. And it just, just, all fell in line and it says the man stopped right there. He bowed himself and he worshipped. Abraham passed something on. There was something real in Abraham's life that Eliezer saw. 
Our family doesn't have a mission statement. I don't think it would hurt. Purpose in life. Deciding where you want to go. What is your goal? Write it down. And then what are you going to do to achieve the objectives? But I will say this, whatever they are, it's going to take sacrifice to reach those goals. Worship is a heart posture. Worship is what our hearts are bent toward. And the Scripture informs, it's the steering wheel that directs. We have to, we have to understand who God is. And our, our, our status in relation to God. And we as heads of home, as parents, as older siblings, have a lot to do with the atmosphere in the home. Whether it's respectful, whether it's God-honoring or self-serving. I'd like to read the last few paragraphs of a book that I read recently, which I don't know why, it's been on my shelf for years, and I picked it off and I read it in the last couple weeks. And as I was meditating on this, I just was drawn here. Maybe there's something someone here needs. Kingdom-Focused Finances for the Family is a book by Gary Miller. And this is just one of the the concluding paragraph, yeah, the conclusion of the last chapter. It says, God is calling us today to more than just well-balanced financial lives. Many godless people in our society have practical budgets, live disciplined lives, and avoid the scourge of consumer debt. In fact, these attributes describe most successful people in business. But God is calling our families to a higher vision. He's calling us to live for His kingdom and use the resources He has given us for His glory. I am convinced that one of the major reasons so many of our homes today are struggling in the area of personal finance is simply a result of unbelief. We have spent too much time admiring and chasing things which have no lasting value and too little time focusing on things of eternal value. Now, what he just said is, we're worshiping something besides God. We live in a setting similar to that of Moses in Pharaoh's palace. We are just as we are today. He was surrounded with everything a man could want. Every fleshly desire could be met in that palace, yet he willingly gave it all up. The writer of Hebrews said it like this, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for he had a respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses had it all, yet he chose to give it up. He chose rather to give up the present and the things he could see for the future, could see for the future and the unseen. He gave up present pleasure for future reward. May the same be true in each of our homes. May our lives be so dedicated and consecrated to the building of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus and so radically different from the surrounding culture that no one will be able to not deny that we are choosing Jesus. And I would say there, no one could deny who we are worshiping. Let's bow our heads for prayer.